It's Tuesday, June the 16th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, political and geopolitical concerns of a world that's ever-changing due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Neil Ferguson, the Millbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in for our usual host, Bill Whelan, who's off this week. Now, those of you who've been watching us regularly know the format. For you first-time viewers, this is a conversation in which three Hoover Senior Fellows, we call ourselves the Good Fellows, it's irony, by the way, offer our unique insights into what may lie ahead in these complicated times. This week, we're joined by a guest good fellow, this time Francis Fukuyama, the Olivier Nomellini Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spoley Institute for International Studies at Stanford, also the director of the Ford Dorsey Masters in International Policy, and the Mosbacher Director of FSI's Center on Democracy. Now, Frank has written widely on issues relating to questions of democratization and international political economy, but he's probably best known for his essay, The End of History, published in the summer of 1989, which came to seem almost prophetic when the Berlin Wall came down just months later. His most recent book is Identity, the Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. Welcome, Frank. Thanks for having me. Now let's meet the uh, regular good fellows. John Cochran is an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemarie and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. He's also the author of the Grumpy Economist blog, which you really should bookmark as a must read. Hello, John. Hi. And last but not least is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, the Hoover Institution's Food and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. Prior to returning to Hoover, he served as the National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. General McMaster is also the author of Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. It's coming out this fall, but you can pre-order it now. Hello, HR. Hi, Neil, and welcome, Frank. Thanks very much. Now, Frank, you have a new piece in the current issue of Foreign Affairs entitled The Pandemic and Political Order. I'm going to start uh, with your essay and with you and a, and a quotation. The pandemic, he wrote, has shone a bright light on existing institutions everywhere, revealing their inadequacies and weaknesses. Now, I've heard from a number of different sources the argument that the pandemics revealed the weakness of democracies and the strength of authoritarian regimes. In other words, the United States has had a bad pandemic and China has had a good one. But that's not the argument you're making in this essay, is it? Uh, no. So I think that just comparing two countries, even if they're emblematic of authoritarian and democratic government like uh, China and the U.S., is not... <laughs> statistically um, you know, a valid uh, way of establishing uh, comparisons between large and varied groups of countries. And so I think if you look beyond those two, uh, you'll see that there are many authoritarian countries that have done pretty badly, Turkmenistan or Belarus or Russia itself. Uh, and there are also <clears throat> democracies that have done well. South Korea, Taiwan, Germany all have, in fact, South Korea and Taiwan have better records in dealing with COVID than China does, and they're both liberal democracies. And so I don't think it's the regime type that really uh, <clears throat> determines how good your public health response to this crisis has been. 
You say the factors responsible for successful pandemic responses have been state capacity, social trust, and leadership. Countries with all three have performed impressively. Is there any way of kind of figuring out why some countries have these things? Uh, Is this just a kind of matter of historical luck? How how do you explain the the trifecta that makes for a a competent and effective response to a pandemic? Well, the um, state capacity part is a matter of historical accumulation. It, It really takes a lot of effort to build a competent state. That means having adequate human capital. It means having uh, a public health system with trained doctors and nurses and people uh, running public agencies. Um, so that uh, is really something that actually correlates to some extent with uh, you know, how wealthy you are because richer countries can, can build these things. But I do think that one of the reasons that East Asia has come up as rapidly as it has over the past three generations is that they always had a modern state. That, that tradition in China goes back many more centuries before that such a state appeared in, in Europe. And so in a way, it's not surprising that East Asian countries in general have, uh, have done well. Uh, the trust part, well, the, the, uh, the leadership part is complicated. Uh, I think that where the leadership has faltered uh, is particularly in countries that have had populist leaders. And I would say the United States and Brazil are prime examples of that. Uh, I think in general, populist leaders want to be popular. They don't want to associate themselves with unpleasant things. Uh, and that's led them to kind of override, uh, you know, delegation of ex- you know, to experts or, or deference to experts in terms of uh, designing their response. The trust factor is uh, also, I think, pretty critical because in a public health emergency, you don't want to have to compel people to do the things that are good for you know, the general public. Uh, and if you don't trust the judgment of your leaders, if you don't trust the government, uh, if, as in this country, you're extremely polarized uh, into red and blue, uh, then you're not going to have the, the, you know, the level of trust that's, allow, that's going to allow for that kind of uh, voluntary compliance. So I think all of these things are, you know, uh, conditions that have determined outcomes in, in this crisis. Can I go after you on the leadership issue? You, you wrote uh, pretty critically about President Trump in this essay, quote, it was the country's singular misfortune to have the most incompetent and divisive leader in its modern history at the helm when the crisis hit. But I wonder if I could push back a bit, because it seems to me that although the media have done their best to make it all about President Trump, in truth, what went wrong in the United States was a good deal further down the ladder of the uh, federal government, to be precise, at the Department of Health and Human Services, where they had an assistant secretary for preparedness whose job this was, who seems to have been missing in action for most of the last five months. It went wrong at CDC, where they had notionally prepared for a pandemic, but when one actually came along, they entirely failed to ramp up testing. I I wondered as I was reading your essay, if you were making the mistake of of attaching too much importance to the man at the top. I know the buck stops there, but ultimately isn't a pandemic really a test of of the public health bureaucracy? And and that failed in the United States, so far as I can see. 
Well, uh, you know, look, these failures have multiple sources, and obviously the CDC made a big mistake in February when they tried to develop a test and they didn't open themselves up to different alternatives and so forth. So that was clearly a mistake. But, you know, if you think about why these bureaucracies are not performing, this is an administration that came in with complete contempt for the U.S. government, right? The whole thing was getting rid of the deep state, which basically meant the permanent bureaucracy and all of the experts that exist in the U.S. government to handle a crisis like this. And they replaced them with political appointees that didn't have the expertise or left those positions simply uh, unfilled. Uh, it is ultimately the responsibility of the president to make sure that those bureaucracies uh, are working properly. And this president didn't do that. There was an office in the White House that was supposed to deal with pandemic response uh, that was shut down. He could have revived that office uh, at any point. Uh, he could have taken warnings much earlier than he did uh, to actually ramp up the ability of these bureaucracies to deal with things. So I think that it's really hard to avoid you know, the personal responsibility of the president who up until about the second week in March was insisting that this wasn't even a crisis uh, and therefore did nothing to urge you know, the ramping up of testing, of, you know, getting the CDC to fix the problems that um, had been, you know, made evident in February. Pichar, can I throw this one at you? After all, you served in the administration and as somebody who's uh, been involved in, in military campaigns and crises of national security, you must have a, a view of this. Uh, sure, the buck stops with the president, but in a crisis like this, isn't it to some extent the responsibility of people further down the administrative ladder to, to respond and, and give the president good advice? It's not clear to me that that happened. Yeah, I think what we're seeing is a, is a failure at a number of levels to, to be able to, to mobilize the, the kind of medical response that was necessary. And, you know, of course, we're not a centralized system for, from a healthcare perspective, from a governance perspective. And, and I think what this crisis has laid bare is the need for better coordination and integration across departments and agencies. What Frank is alluding to is kind of the role of the National Security Council in doing that. And an emphasis on coordination across levels of government and what we're seeing here in particular, because we don't have a national healthcare system, is the need for even better coordination between the public and private sectors. And I think these are, these are the lessons that we have to learn together. What, what really concerns me is, that we may not learn anything because we are so caught up in the vitriolic partisan politics these days. And we're reeling, you know, we're reeling from this, you know, this triple crisis, right, of, 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 of COVID, of the economic effect, and now the outrage about inequality and, and police brutality in, in the wake of the murder of, of George Floyd. So I, I think that there's a failure at a number of levels. I think that reflexively, <laughs> Because, you know, President Trump is, you know, is, is a polarizing figure, right? You either love him or you hate him. And I think, I think that, that what's, what's, what's uh, unfortunate about so much of the debate is, is it, it has fallen out along those lines, when it is obviously a much, much bigger issue that requires really a nonpartisan effort you know, to, to get to much better, much, much better implementation. As I mentioned previously, Frank, you know, we, you know, we had three pillars, you know, in the, in the strategy for uh, on a previous on a previous episode here of response. Right. The first was, OK, detect it early and contain it. Right. OK, that that was sort of foiled by the Chinese Communist Party. 
Uh, the second is to innovate rapidly with, with therapies, but then really especially a vaccine. I think that's going okay. And the investments made over several administrations to build out really the capability and the capacity for rapid manufacturing at scale of, 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 uh, of vaccines, I think that's gonna pay off. The third is where we've, we've stumbled into this problem, right? Which, and seen, you've seen the difficulties, is, is in, in mobilizing the, the response, right? Across the government and with the private sector. And, and, and Frank, I, I just like to ask you what you see as the, as the main obstacles to, to getting better, right? I mean, you're, you're an expert really at, at, uh, at not only just what it takes to make institutions function, but what it's going to take for us to work together on these solutions, right? And and uh, and I have my I, I'm going to quote from, but I have my my dog ear and, and Mark's copy of, of identity here uh, to, to bring up as well. But I, Frank, I just want to ask you what what you see in, in terms of what is uniquely American about the difficulties that we've encountered, and what can we do to compensate for you know for our deficiencies, uh, but at the same time you kind of maximize the potential associated with a more decentralized system? Well, uh, so HR, you're asking actually two very different questions. I think, you know, one has to do with the basic um, polarization in this country, which I think is built around these identity issues. And that's a whole nother <laughs> discussion. I mean, that's a really complicated one that is very deeply rooted in many things that have been going on really for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, I think that in terms of a government response, uh, you know, I've felt for many years that we basically need a new Pendleton Act. We need a public sector reform. This is something that has been the least favorite topic you can bring up in Washington on the part of both Republicans and Democrats, because everybody loves to hate the bureaucracy. Nobody really wants to work uh, to improve its uh, performance. Uh, I think there's lots of things that could happen. This is a problem that preceded uh, Trump by, you know, by many decades. Paul Volcker led two national commissions on reform of the of, uh, public service and none of his recommendations were ever taken up. But, uh, you know, I think the more important thing is something that actually, now I know this is a Hoover production and I'm sorry if this sounds uh, <laughs> uh, offensive to certain ears, but it really goes back to, you know, to the Reagan administration that there was this deep contempt for government itself or this very great skepticism about government that I think uh, prevented us from making the kinds of investments in state capacity, which the Europeans and people in Asia really don't have any hesitation about. It's one of those aspects that Marty Lipset uh, kept referring to about American exceptionalism, right? That exceptionalism means we're exceptionally good, but we're also exceptionally bad in certain respects. And one of the deepest characteristics of American political culture uh, is this dislike of the state. Uh, and I think that that has prevented us from grappling uh, seriously with the kinds of gaps in state capacity, these, you know, these gaps in, in expertise uh, that, you know, I think really hurt us in a, in a moment of crisis. So if I were to take advantage of the current moment and you had the political opportunity for doing this kind of reform, uh, that's the that's the place I would begin with. Maybe I could uh, do a little history here. I I, I don't think when uh, Alexis de Tocqueville came to to the United States, uh, he lamented the lack of state capacity. In fact, he looked around and marvelled at, at the fact that Americans could do so much 
with relatively little state capacity, and particularly central government. An alternative reading of history looks not so much at the 1980s uh, as at the 1970s. Uh, this is a, a, an argument that Chris DeMuth and others have made, that the birth of the administrative state really comes then, if not earlier, and that it's, uh, it's this growth of a very large federal government with dozens, more than 60 different federal agencies that leads to the pathologies that we've seen in 2020. I was really struck when I looked at the 1957-58 pandemic, at how well the federal government handled it, when of course it was a much smaller federal government and it didn't have this sort of accumulated bureaucracy, which seems to have made such a, a, a mess of, uh, of CDC as an an institution, but uh, but I'm sure John is itching to to jump in and uh, and and say uh, perhaps a few words in defence of small government too. Yeah, well, in, before we get down to the economic issues, uh, I mean, I, I like the way our con we started with sort of it's Trump's fault, and I think we've gone to well, these are issues that go back decades. That America, despite its wealth, has has not built the state capacity, and in fact, what Neil just said. In some sense, we had a state capacity and it has deteriorated. Uh, I'll say, you know, that the Reagan era, which didn't actually reduce much in the way of regulation uh, anyway, but it was built on the abject failures of the regulatory state that had come to there. Now, America, we're not good at building state capacity at the federal level, but the state capacity we built was horrendously incompetent and counterproductive. And I think there was that was a reason for much of its uh, for the re reaction against it, and that's the the problem we face right now. I mean, we we I, I'm not convinced that had Hillary Clinton won the election and put different people in charge of the CDC that we would have not seen all the same low level that we would have had an Iceland experience and not seen the whole level low level failures. Uh, and, and, and our, our bureaucracy fails in many other respects. You know, look what it costs to build a subway under New York compared to what it costs to build this and how, you know, the decades it takes to get all the permits and planning, just as, as one of the many examples. Look, look at what our state capacity did to the inner cities in the 1970s and, and, and threatens to do it again. So I think um, this is where I want to push Francis a little bit. Um, we, it, there's a sense that we had a, a state capacity at the end of World War II in the 1950s and it has eroded. There's sort of a sense of end of empire, like the end of the Ottoman Empire, the end of the Ancien Regime, um, where a government's bureaucratic state capacity systems existed, but become hidebound by regulation, tradition, politics, call it what you want. Uh, and then if and 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 then that state is unable to meet the challenge of a a political movement or a a, a small pandemic by historical standards of what pandemic means. So so rebuilding that state capacity, I think, is is the number one thing. But I don't think it's as easy as just put the right people in charge or or pass an act. Um, so what do you think, Fred? Is this end of empire? Or are we? the Ottoman Empire waiting for the First World War to topple us? Look, I'd be <clears throat> the first to admit that a lot of the problems in the American state, you know, uh, originate in the, in the left. So public sector unions in many places create too many rigidities. Uh, I could go on for hours about trying to build infrastructure in uh, California. I mean, there's a reason we don't build infrastructure. It's a perfect conspiracy between Republicans who don't want to pay for it and Democrats who want to permit it to death, right? So 
there's blame to be shared on both sides. That being said, I do think, however, that there's some things that people don't quite understand. So uh, we actually have approximately the same number of full-time federal employees in the US government as we did in the early 1960s. Uh, the volume of spending that those bureaucrats oversee has quintupled in that period. The Health and Human Services Met, uh, Centers <clears throat> uh, for Medicare and Medicaid have you know, something like 2,200 employees to oversee the spending of $300 million, uh, a billion dollars of, of federal spending. Uh, policing all of the Medicare fraud and so forth, you know. So in a sense, uh, the the capacity has deteriorated simply because the job of the federal government, as you said, has gotten a lar lot larger. But we're just not willing to hire anybody, and so we hire contractors uh, instead. But you know, I think the the thing that really worries me is actually the new capacity that's coming in. Very very few of my students want to go into the federal government, you know. Now, most of my students are very public spirited, and if they are, they'll go into an international organization like the UN or the World Bank. They'll go to an NGO uh, or they'll go to the private sector, thinking the private sector may be able to do public functions. But the last place they want to work for is the federal government. Uh, and that's, again, because we've made it really difficult. You know, the compliance requirements for just getting a job in the federal government are very high. The rigidities that are imposed on federal workers, uh, you know, you can't be taken to lunch by anybody, including, you know, your sister, if you're a federal employee, because you've got all of these rules that, uh, you know, surround you. So there's a lot of things that really make uh, our state capacity weak right now. And that's why I'm saying we really do need a thoroughgoing uh, civil, civil service reform that will deal with these problems have been created, I agree, you know, both on the left and the right. But you do have to, I think, beyond that, create a certain pride in that. And that's the stuff that I don't hear ever coming out of the right, except for the military, right? That actually, it's a good thing to be a federal bureaucrat, that it's an honorable profession, that if, you know, like my father-in-law worked for the U.S. Soil Service in Lincoln, Nebraska, his whole career, helping farmers to you know, adjust to different soil conditions. You know, he was a, had a PhD in soil science. There are, there are lots and lots of people in the US government that are squirreled away doing this kind of thing. Michael Lewis's book, uh, The Fifth Risk is actually very good because he interviews a lot of these people. And I think that, you know, in a sense, what we need is a kind of cultural revolution where people all of a sudden say, yeah, actually, Public service is a good career. You know, it's something I want to do because I care about the, the common good. Uh, and again, you know, the military is really, I think, the only place where that kind of spirit still exists. Um, and I think that's something that really needs to be broadened to other parts of the U.S. government. Perhaps we can also add the capacity for low-level bureaucrats to innovate, which I right now everybody is just cover your butt. Um, you know, as examples, the TSA, I just saw like a week ago, the TSA thought, hmm, maybe we should put thermometers on, uh, you know, people getting in line to get on airplanes. The Chinese had that system in, in January. It's, it's just a buy it, put it in, measure people's temperature. Uh, you know, they still don't have it. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we, we saw it, it's just very slow to innovate and, and, and do things. We're just following the rule book. 
Well, but you know, the, the risk aversion in the bureaucracy is, yep. is something real, but it's also the byproduct, I think, of the polarization. Because if you're a bureaucrat and you take a risk, like Solyndra, for example, right? So the Obama administration wanted to put money behind <clears throat> alternative fuels. They were trying to act like a venture capitalist. Maybe it wasn't a good program overall, but if you're going to be a venture capitalist, you're going to have some failures. Uh, and that was a failure. But then that becomes, you know, the issue of government corruption uh, and, and waste. And so I think if you say appropriately that you do want uh, federal bureaucrats to be able to innovate and take risks, you can't punish them for that. Or there has to be something, you know, like in the military called the freedom to fail, where if you do take a risk and it doesn't work out well, but it was a it was a well calculated risk, it doesn't end your career. It may even enhance your career. Frank, there's a question I want to ask about the economy now, because it seems to me that part of what you've been arguing now for some years uh, is, is that really the United States needs to get a bit more European. Uh, it needs to have a kind of proper Hegelian state. Uh, and that would be somehow more convincing if Europe consistently outperformed the US economically. Now, one of the things you say in your foreign affairs essay is that you expect it to be a long, slow haul uh, back to economic health after the pandemic. But actually, we're getting some pretty surprising numbers from the US economy. The unemployment rate turned out to be lower than expected. Uh, and we've just had some uh, uh, numbers and consumption that surprised, as they say in Wall Street, to the upside. Wouldn't it slightly spoil the argument if the US economy recovered much more rapidly than the European economies, as of course happened after the financial crisis? Uh, isn't there a kind of trade-off here that, that we, we, we need to be explicit about, that the corollary of the relatively ramshackle federal government is a more dynamic private sector? Well, there's no question that the American private sector is very dynamic, very entrepreneurial. They they take risks in a way that a lot of uh, Europeans don't. So I don't think that uh, I would contest that. Uh, but I do think that, you know, one of the things that holds the Europeans back is actually the social safety net they've created, which uh, it prevents, you know, good performance on the upside, but it also is a safety net. I mean, it, it also keeps a lot of people from uh, falling uh, off the cliff when things go bad. Uh, and that's, some, you know, that's a trade-off that I, that's a value trade-off that I think is actually perfectly uh, legitimate in their case. I think that, you know, the fact that we still to this day do not have a universal government mandated uh, healthcare system is, is a complete scandal. Because um, uh, it's the, you know, one of the most uh, obvious things that uh, a state can actually do that virtually every, in fact, not virtually, every other rich country has a system like this in place, uh, except for the United States. And I think the need for something like that, you know, becomes really, really obvious when you hit by a pandemic. So I'll uh, recommend George Schultz's uh, editorial in today's Wall Street Journal describing Singapore's healthcare system. And I will certainly wish that when I'm 100 years old, I'm writing as cogent op-eds as that one. Uh, you know, the trouble is the, the, the design question is how you have an adequate safety net without disincentives. Already in the US, um, our safety net imposes 70% is a conservative number marginal tax rates on poor people 
that when they earn an extra dollar, um, they, they uh, only get 30 cents of the result. And it's the disincentives that cause the problem. I think it is possible to design a, a system that is that protects people <coughs> without the disincentives in place. Of course, disincentives are a dirty word in, in these discussions. So um, our, our system and Europe's system are both horrendously inefficient at the amount of help they provide. And this matters. Uh, throughout Europe, GDP per capita is 25% less than the US, a quarter. That's, you know, that's just an enormous amount uh, that, that's being lost there. So I, I certainly think that's the discussion. Yeah, but, but isn't it the case that we, we pay roughly twice what Europeans do per capita uh, for healthcare and we get or, much, much worse outcomes? Our healthcare system is, it's an it's a, it's a epitome of American inefficiency. We do not have a private healthcare system. We have a government-run no. oligopoly. It's practically a fascist healthcare well, system. Well, look, yeah. So look, I'm, you're not well, going to get any arguments yes. to me that it's we a need to fix healthcare. System, right? We need to fix healthcare. Yeah, we need to Go fix on. healthcare. Can, and I we, again, can I suggest maybe a point of agreement and direct a question to Frank? Frank, are there situations in which really the problems we're facing were caused by government regulation that we could fo focus on first? So I'm. I'm thinking now of the issue of inequality of opportunity in the inner cities, the effect that redlining of neighborhoods, for example, uh, you know, that, that had uh, during the Great Migration uh, after this after the Civil War. I mean, are there maybe points of agreement? What a starting point might be because really what I'm trying to do now is is find places where we can all start together, right, across the political spectrum and and so forth. Uh, do, any, do you have anything to suggest along those lines, Frank? Of you know, of taking <laughs> the government created as maybe a first step? Like education, for example. Yeah, uh, well, certainly uh, the, you know, the problem I think is that we'd all agree that we need to fix the healthcare system and we need to fix the education system. But then when you and actually get into the mechanisms, uh, you know, then immediately you start, <laughs> you start diverging again. Uh, I do think that it's important though that uh, we find a kind of safe space where you can actually have rational discussions uh, about uh, these kinds of issues, because I really do think that the fault is not uh, by any means entirely on one side or the other. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm all in favor of that. <laughs> can we maybe turn uh, for the last part of our discussion from these domestic uh, issues where we can all agree there's a problem, but we can't agree on the solution. And talk about some of the things you say in your in your essay, Frank, about the international scene, because these seem to be pretty important and uh, and 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 powerful statements. Quote: The global distribution of power will continue to shift eastward, since East Asia has done better at managing the situation than Europe or the United States. Uh, and here's another uh, quote. Over the years to come, the pandemic could lead to the United States' relative decline, the continued erosion of the liberal international order, and a resurgence of fascism around the globe. Now, that's a pretty scary prospect. Uh, talk a bit about the, the global consequences of the pandemic and, this, and, these, and these problems that, as you say, it's shunned su such a bright light on. Uh, there is obviously uh, more than one scenario in your essay, and I want to leave time for the more optimistic one that you, you countenance. But let's start with the worst case scenario, shift of power to the east, but not only that, but potentially a 
decline of the U.S. and, and some resurgence of fascism, this is a scary prospect. Well, I think, you know, that scenario is very easy to draw because we've already been living in a period where we've seen increasing nationalism, xenophobia, uh, isolationism, uh, and so forth. And so you have an international pandemic and that simply accelerates those trends. Uh, I think a lot of people have been thinking along those lines. Um, and, you know, there, there are going to be black swan effects we're not even uh, aware of. I mean, actually, I sort of think that if you hadn't had three months of the country being shut in, uh, the the uh, George Floyd protests would probably not have been as large. Um, and that's already a very unexpected you know, consequence that nobody would have predicted, I think, necessarily in February. Uh, but I do think it's important to point out, uh, as you just did, that that was only one scenario. Uh, I think that this is also a big opportunity because it has the you know the crisis has exposed a lot of weaknesses in healthcare systems, in inequality, in uh, a lot of other areas where governments should have been performing better. So there will definitely be authoritarians around the world that are going to take full advantage of this crisis to extend their powers. But you could also have uh, you know a moment where you could get very serious uh, uh, reform in democracies themselves. Uh, I pointed out in the essay that the Great Depression is commonly credited with having accelerated the rise of uh, Hitler and Mussolini in Europe, which it undoubtedly did. But it also led to, you know, the 1932 election of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, the New Deal, the you know the laying of the uh, of the American uh, welfare state, uh, and you wouldn't have had those kinds of reform. Now. I know not everybody thinks that those were great reforms, but uh, I do, and they wouldn't also have happened if you hadn't had a huge um, uh, economic disaster. So I think you could get similar kinds of shifts in a more progressive direction uh, coming out of this crisis as well. Can I question you a bit about this shift to the East? Because it seems to me uh, to be quite widely uh, accepted that uh, that this is at least a a milestone in a, a transition of power from from the United States to to China, even if we're not entirely in an Asian century. I wonder if there's another way of thinking about this, namely that that the crisis, which after all originated in China, and I think originated in large measure because of pathologies of the one-party state, might actually be doing more damage to the stability of the Chinese system. Than, than we in the West recognize. It's a bit like after Chernobyl, uh, people in the West didn't realize just how fatally hold the Soviet Union was below the waterline by the mid 1980s, though people within the Soviet Union did. Could it be that we're slightly missing that the problems that this is causing China? I was struck last week by the announcement that they're going to bring back street vendors into the streets of Chinese cities, which sounds like a very desperate attempt to keep the unemployment rate from uh, going up officially. Any, any signs of fundamental cracks in the system there, Frank? Well, I don't see any evidence of fundamental cracks, but I certainly hope that some of what you say turns out to be true, because I do think this crisis revealed a lot of weaknesses, you know, beginning with the governments um, uh, wanting to cover up the, the, the epidemic, you know, when it, when it started. But there's a lot of areas where they're going to show weakness. I mean, they've never since 1978 had a recession. This is the first time that they're actually seeing declining, you know, quarter on quarter uh, GDP. 
and a lot of their legitimacy has been tied to this economic performance. And so that's a big challenge. I think a lot of Belt and Road projects are now going south because uh, the client states cannot afford the loans that uh, they've agreed to uh, with the Chinese. Uh, and, you know, we it's not a transparent system, so we don't really understand what's going on below the surface in terms of their leadership um, uh, politics. But it could be that there are, you know, much sharper questions about the, the legitimacy of Xi Jinping, among other people, since he's personally taken, you know, such a big role in uh, within the, the leadership, where it's, you no longer have collective leadership. It's really all about him. So you're right. I I hope I hope some of those weaknesses are true. When I said I think it's going to accelerate the shift to Asia, I didn't mean to China necessarily. Uh, I think that it's going to be to Asia as a whole. And one of the positive things I think that's going on actually as a result of Trump's trade war is the diversification uh, of supply chains out of China. You know, uh, if you can move to Bangladesh or to Vietnam or to some other place, I think this is the time to do it. And that's also something that I think is going to negatively affect China in the long run. Here's a hypothesis for uh, all three of you. Uh, what's going to turn out to be the significance of COVID-19 is not so much its economic or domestic political consequences, but its geopolitical consequences. Uh, we're, we're seeing not only an escalation of Cold War II between the US and China, but now we have uh, border uh, clashes between China and India in the news. Russians deploying fighter jets to Libya, which appears to be getting divided in two between Turkish-backed and Russian-backed forces. I, I wonder if it's going to be, for future historians, really the geopolitical consequences of COVID-19 that, that matter. That's part of what I was prompted to think by reading your essay. M maybe the real surprises yet to come this year, the black swans, if you like, will, will in fact be in geopolitics. Any thoughts on that? That's uh, that's entirely uh, possible. I think that uh, anytime you get a big redistribution of global power, uh, you're going to get very unanticipated consequences. I do think that even if uh, Biden is elected in November, uh, you're still going to have a very divided United States. And it's simply not going to be able to return to the kind of international role that I would like to see. Um, so I think that essentially this um, uh, weakening of the American role internationally uh, is going to happen pretty much regardless of what goes on in, uh, in November. HR, my old friend Graham Allison published an essay uh, just the other day saying that, that we might actually be closer to hot war with China than we realize. And he drew an analogy with the sanctions that the US imposed on Japan in 1939 through to 41, culminating in the oil embargo, which forced the hands of the imperial government and led pretty much directly to Pearl Harbor. In Graham's analogy, it's the, uh, it's the imposition of a, of a ban on China's imports of semiconductors from uh, companies like TSMC in Taiwan that would be the equivalent uh, the equivalent economic pressure that precipitates a drastic action. This must have been the kind of thing you were thinking about when you were working on national security strategy as uh, as national security advisor and revising 
the national security strategy. Uh, we, we've got very used to using economic sanctions as a country over the last 20 years. Uh, is there a risk that we might overuse economic pressure and trigger a kind of crisis, whether over Taiwan or some other place? I think the reason why why China's emboldened is because we haven't competed effectively. And I think, you know, I think uh, Graham's latest essay is a great example of, of our propensity toward self-flagellation states and to, and to blame ourselves even for the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, if if sanctions go against like we would any other country who put one to three million people in a concentration camp, tried to eliminate the freedom of the people in Hong Kong, has now uh, has now threatened Taiwan, has become more aggressive in the, in the South China Sea with the most recent uh, event in Malaysia, is creating a, a border crisis with, with India. And I think what you're seeing is, you're seeing what Frank alluded to a little bit in, in the discussion, is I think a combination of, of the Chinese Communist Party's ambitions and their fears. I think it, to a certain extent, Xi Jinping, you know, is, he, he thinks, he, he thinks he's, he's playing a pretty good hand right now, despite the, the recession, because he's the crises in the United States. And, you know, if you're if you're the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, you probably don't really tolerate a lot of diversity of opinions around you, right? I mean, I forget what the number was. When they voted on Hong Kong, it was 2,558 to one or something. So, so I think that he's in an echo chamber. He thinks, wow, I've got hypersonic missiles. I have a much more capable People's Liberation Army. You know, look at the crises in the United States. Uh, they're being torn apart by you know, by, by uh, domestic uh, unrest and so and, and vitriolic uh, partisan politics. And, and so there's a perception of weakness. And I think that's really what, what is more dangerous than any kind of sanctions that we put be placed on the Chinese Communist Party. I think sanctions in many ways are overdue and they ought to be multinational based on the behavior of the regime. Uh, what's unfortunate, I think, about the approach that our friend Graham, who, you, know, you know, for whom I have tremendous respect, is, has, has taken uh, in the book, or at least how his book's interpreted, and in this essay, is that it poses this false choice, right, between uh, between passivity and acquiescence to the Chinese Communist Party and confrontation. And I think if we don't compete effectively, if we don't galvanize our like-minded partners to confront the party, uh, then, uh, then I think we are, are actually on a path to, to confrontation. And, and so I think uh, I think multilateral action is what's needed now. There have been some very promising signs with that type of coordination, especially with the with the uh, Australians and with the uh, and, and uh, in, in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, Japan backed off a, a little bit in recent days, but uh, but has been really stalwart on this and has has taken the lead in a lot of uh, countermeasures to the Chinese Communist Party's coercion. But hey, I, I think what I'm worried about a lot now, though, is what what if the People's Liberation Army believes the party's propaganda? What if they believe now is the time for them to take center stage, that they are almighty now? So I, I agree that the chances are high for a confrontation, but I think to reduce those chances, uh, we, we ought to be more determined to confront really the abhorrent behavior of the Chinese Communist Party. Frank, you kind of prophesied the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. I still remember the excitement with which I read your essay. I was a graduate student uh, in Berlin when you published it. Uh, can you get your crystal ball out for us now and, yeah. and tell us what's what's next? Uh, could we end up finding ourselves in, in a hot war uh, even as early as this year? Or 
Is there something else that, that we're, we're missing that you, you are able to discern with that uncanny ability that, that, that you have? Well, first of all, I have to correct you. I wasn't actually predicting uh, anything in particular, and I don't think I've, I haven't been good at that in the past, and I don't think I'm going to get good at it uh, in the future. Uh, you know, what I said in my essay was, you can actually have a very optimistic uh, prediction and a very pessimistic one. I tended to think that the pessimistic outcomes would outweigh the optimistic ones simply as a result of numbers, that there are many more countries that have been put under great stress that aren't going to do well, uh, and that's going to be a formula for, uh, for problems. But, you know, if you think about the long-term consequences of the Great Depression or, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall or the financial crisis in 2008, or September 11th, you know, we're not going to know. It's not going to be a matter of two or three years. A lot of those consequences aren't going to show up for a decade or two decades. Uh, you know, the fact that you'd have the rise of populist parties uh, all over the, the rich world uh, after the financial crisis, that's something that I think no one really would have uh, predicted. So that's just a long-winded way of avoiding an answer to your question. <laughs> we, we've only got a few minutes left, uh, and I just want to make sure that we don't leave out uh, an important uh, economic question. Uh, as you argue, Frank, big government is kind of here and, and getting bigger, certainly in fiscal terms and uh, uh, in terms of the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, the response to the pandemic has been to create uh, legitimacy for policies that used to be regarded by conservatives as fringe from universal basic income to modern monetary theory. And I, I guess my question for John is, where, where do we end up? Uh, do we end up in a, in a more inflationary world? Uh, maybe not this year, because it feels like uh, deflation's uh, the short run problem. But, but taking a longer view, uh, do you think there's anything to be said, John, for the idea that we're, we're actually steering our way back to the 1970s? I remember Ken Rogoff made this point early in the crisis that supply shock plus monetary expansion uh, usually leads uh, to stagflation. Is that in your crystal ball? Not in the short run. Uh, we, we have a very different financial system in the 1970s, and I think that made the inflation break out faster than otherwise. What we have, what we will have at the end of this is an enormous amount of debt. Uh, within the short run, the opportunity to fund that debt at low interest rates, and we'll see how long that short run uh, lasts. Uh, so what we face is just the classic problems that you as a historian will recognize of countries with 100, 150% debt to GDP ratios, no particular prospect of strong fiscal surpluses to pay them down, and how do we get out of it? Um, a sharp inflation can come. It's a form of a debt crisis. Uh, you can have an actual debt crisis, or you can return to strong supply-side growth and fiscal probity and grow out of it. Uh, those will be our choices. Uh, but the nature of our financial and monetary system, I don't think, uh, leads to um, the kind of thing that happened under the breakdown of Bretton Woods and the gold standard that we had in the early 1970s, which really accelerated that inflation. Well, as we've been talking, it struck me uh, repeatedly that uh, it's going to be very hard to, to call even the rest of 2020, never mind the 2020s. Uh, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. I want to thank you all, especially uh, Frank, for, for joining us here on, on Goodfellas. And that's it for another episode of Goodfellas. We'll be back next week with a new topic 
a new conversation and you never know, maybe a new guest. On behalf of the Hoover Goodfellows, myself, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, and our special guest Goodfellow, Francis Fukuyama, as well as everyone here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Thank you.